This episode was recorded at the year ahead, an international security, intelligence, and defense outlook for 2018 at the Canadian War Museum on December 7, 2017. This annual conference is organized by the Center for Security, Intelligence, and Defense Studies at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. The following panel is titled Missions, Missions, and More Missions and features Brigadier General David Anderson from the Canadian Armed Forces, Monica Toft, Professor of International Politics at Tufts University, and Steve Sademan, Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. We've had a bit of a game changer, though, with the new defense policy, uh, short, uh, with the short form of SSE Strong, um, Secure and Engaged. Um, and I think it's important for professionals to understand just what a huge game changer this defense policy is. It is an absolute and total paradigm shift in the manner in which uh, we consider uh, commit and prepare for operations. Um, first of all, it's, it's, it's no longer activity-based. So in the past, there'd be a discussion. The government would say, um, hey, uh, what do you got? And we'd say, well, what do you want us to do? And they'd say, well, what do you got? And it's like, well, what, what do you want us to do, right? So this has been an ongoing discussion. Moreover, we, we as the military have not had an output upon which to base our requests for capability. It's all been activity-based. What has changed significantly in SSC, particularly on page 81, um, is the commitment to concurrent operations. Uh, the commitment to current, concurrent operations has an output to it. It has a specific size and capability that's articulated for each one of those, uh, each one of those missions. So we've gone from activity-based planning to output-based planning. That is significant for the military. It means that we have a framework against which to argue the requirement for capabilities as opposed to, this is what we want. Don't you know this is what we want? Or as Kretchen said, generals always want more, right? So now it's, it's actually codified in, uh, in governmental policy as we must be able to do those things. Um, it's referred to as uh, 7 plus 2 plus 1 or 12. So seven um, overseas operations, uh, three major and four minor. Um, two enduring missions, in, uh, national evacuation operations, uh, sorry, non-combatant evacuation operations, and uh, uh, humanitarian assistance slash disaster response, um, and then of course the defense of Canada. Add into that our commitments to NORAD and NATO and you have the 12. And there is an absolute output that's defined specifically on page 81 um, that, that indicates what we have to do about that. This is, uh, this is one of those things where um, we, we feel like the dog that caught the car, okay? So we got the car, now what do we do with it? And to be perfectly honest, what we've realized uh, and we've always known intuitively is what we lack is the connective tissue to enable concurrent operations at this level. Connective tissue is logistics, it's sustainment, it's uh, family resources, it's padres, it's healthcare, it's all of those things that we needed. This is not about um, more planes, uh, more labs, or more boats. Uh, or ships. It's about the connective tissue that enables us to, to do all of that. And, and we're working through all of that uh, pretty, uh, pretty quickly right now. As you know where the government is in its mandate right now, this is the year of delivery um, with its embracement of, uh, embracing of deliverology. So the policy came out just before, you know, not that long ago and, and we're expected to deliver it this, uh, this coming year. We will certainly deliver um, 
some of the 81 separate projects that are related to a secu uh, strong, secure, and engaged. Um, it's not just connective tissue that we need to fix. Uh, we're not 100% certain we have the command and cognitive capacity right now to manage those 12 major concurrent operations. So I started by saying we have 23 missions ongoing, but a lot of them are small missions. A lot of those won't go away. Uh, the nine people in Kosovo, the one person in, in Cyprus, the, the, the missions that we do in, with UNSO, et cetera, none of that will go away. We're now talking about uh, the potential for, uh, uh, for nine major operations, and we're only conducting three right now. So strong, secure, and engaged is important, and it is, it's changed our thinking and the way that we look at things. I, I highly recommend reading it if you haven't. I'm assuming everybody here has, or you wouldn't be here. Um, uh, in my opinion, uh, this is a, um, a unique document because it runs counter to the natural instincts of the government of the day, um, very much so. To they didn't run on, on a platform of, uh, of this, and, and yet they have committed. They've made a long-term commitment with long-term funding that future governments will have some difficulty in walking away from uh, to funding uh, Canada's defense enterprise so that it can achieve its uh, foreign policy objectives. So that's strong, secure, and engaged. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about evolution of operations. Operations have changed uh, dramatically. Uh, first of all, there's the, um, there's the era of unpredictability uh, that is normally characterized in 140 characters these days. Uh, that make it very, very difficult to predict uh, what's going to happen next. There is also an evolution in the geopolitical tectonic plates, I would suggest, um, and that we've returned to what I would call the game of empires. Um, I personally think that the Middle East is, a, uh, in many ways, a, uh, a fight between um, the remnants of the Arabic, Persian, and Ottoman empires, um, assisted sometimes by the U.S. empire, exploited by the Russian Empire uh, with the Chinese Empire waiting to uh, come in behind and pick up all the, pick up all the pieces, at least economically. Um, you notice I didn't mention the English Empire. Um, I, was, I spent three years as a company commander in the British Army, um, and when they would hack on me for being a, a colonial, I would remind them the only thing worse than being an ex-colony was being an ex-empire. Um, we, uh, we have another evolution in operations, and that's Western democracies' aversion, uh, aversion to risk, aversion to um, harm to their national treasure, uh, the young men and women who stand in harm's way. And so there's an increasing amount of uh, over-the-horizon over capability and capacity uh, that, that is being used. And, and in the West, particularly in America, we're using the terminology by, with, and through. Um, it's actually a neat way of saying proxies. Uh, but in essence, we're, we're working through other, uh, other organizations and, and other countries, and that was nowhere more clear uh, than, than in Iraq. There are second and third order effects, costs and impacts to um, buy with and through. One is, is that you can, in order to buy down the cost in body bags, you have to spend a lot more money in precision musicians, uh, munitions, okay? Uh, because we do fire and maneuver, and uh, lesser armies do fire and then maneuver, okay? And so you end up using an awful lot more weapons. So we have, we the West have gone through an inordinate amount of precision mu uh, munitions. Um, in, just in the Iraq-Syria campaign, um, as a direct result of not being the ones that are directly in harm's way. Um, there is an increased strain and, and requirement on uh, senior experienced leadership in order to provide the advise, assist, and accompany uh, role uh, that isn't necessarily there. And that has a third or fourth order consequence 
Because if leadership is deployed to do that, then your troops are back home without leadership. And it's something the Americans can absorb better than a small army like ours, um, which misses its leadership when it has it, although the troops would probably not agree with that statement. Um, Building partner capacity is, is a, a key tenet of most Western countries' approach uh, to uh, security these days. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to see it in, at both ends of the spectrum. The industrial level, uh, which was what I was doing as the CJ7, um, which was to um, throw money at the problem. Um, so we kept the Iraqi army in the fight. The easiest way to deliver an alternator for a broken Humvee is in a brand new Humvee, quite, quite frankly. And so we, I spent a lot of the money just keeping them, keeping them in the fight. But I've also seen the bespoke, which is the other end of the spectrum, specific to what we were doing with the strategic advice and assist to the ministers. Uh, we assisted in, basically we wrote a two-year plan uh, for restoring readiness for the Ministry of the Interior, a two-year plan for the Minister of Defense that tied into their longer, uh, longer tenure plan. Um, and we're working on one with the Peshmerga when I left. Um, Canada is playing in this in this game as well. We're doing uh, building partner capacity in Jordan and Lebanon at a small level, small but important level. Uh, we are doing it in in Iraq. Uh, continue to do so, um, and uh, we continue to do it in uh, Ukraine and, and Africa. Um, in terms of uh, threats on the horizon, the Americans talk about the uh, four plus one: Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, plus violent extreme, uh, extremist uh, um, organizations. I think Canada has a different view of it than that, and you can see by where, where we're com we've committed our troops specifically to counter Russia um, in our mission in both Ukraine and in uh, Latvia uh, to counter violent extremist organizations. But we have the other big three that we have to pay attention to, which is the US, the UN, and NATO. So the Americans do a threat base, and we do a which, which, who should we join and support base, and that's traditional for a small or middle power. Um, I'll close with some quick comments on, on, on peacekeeping. Um, so from the Canadian perspective, peace, peacekeeping operations have to uh, match our national interests if we can identify them. And there are plenty of places where we don't have national interests and there is a need for peacekeepers. Um, we need to ensure that it's a whole of government and multilateral effort and not just a military effort. And, and there are strategic considerations as well with a small military and, and a small foreign service. There is an opportunity cost, a, huge, a substantial opportunity cost to everything you commit to. Now you can freeze yourself, never pay the opportunity cost, and never do anything, uh, but it's something that, the, that goes into the calculus. Although we're very well positioned as a, as a peacekeeping nation, um, a Western face that's not America, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things that go with that, um, we, we still only have really three op options. One is to contribute directly to peacekeeping missions. One is to build partner capacity or UN capacity, and the other one is to enable UN missions. There's no shortage of uh, countries that are willing to put boots on the ground. It's the connective tissue and the, and the cognitive uh, capacity, which is where we can probably make the biggest difference. Uh, but it's a lengthy, lengthy process, which I believe Monica is going to talk about, um, in, in order to, to figure out what and where when you're dealing with the UN. Um, and, and finally, um, for a smaller country like ours that's already kind of stretched with some significant missions, there's the problem of distance and, and support. Um, I'll, I'll close with um, three thoughts. Um, and they are a slow, they're a bumper sticker, but they matter. Okay? So the new defense policy, uh, we're strong at home. Um, we're secure in, 
uh, in the homeland, which includes all of North America, and will remain engaged overseas. Thanks. Thank you, General. I'd like to now invite uh, Professor Monica Duffy-Toft from uh, the uh, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And I'm surprised I am the only one that has slides, because usually at military you get PowerPointed to death. Uh, but uh, I am an academic. I have lots of data. Uh, and so I'm going to share some of that with you, both on interventions in general, uh, and then also um, uh, the UN and then Can Canadian operations. So we're just going to pull up the slides. Um, so our task is, you know, the question about missions, missions, and more missions. Uh, and so I'm going to start with the demand for intervention, then move into the supply. And it turns out when you want to think about interventions, you want to think about them during wars. So how do you stop the killing? And then after wars, once the killing has stopped, um, uh, what to do with the state? How do you refashion the state, if it's at all possible? And then what we know about trends and in interventions and then uh, finally some conclusions. So the demand for intervention, you know, the, the bad news is actually we're seeing a backsliding on democratization. Uh, and uh, why it's bad news is that the states that are backsliding are moving into what we call in the academic community, anocracies. So these are states that are neither democracy nor neither autocracies. And it turns out that democracies are pretty good about handling troubles within their borders. We have referenda, we have elections, um, and autocracies are pretty good about repressing people who want referenda uh, and, and elections. Uh, whereas these anocracies, there's enough voice, there's enough demonstrations, there's enough people hitting the street, uh, that what you get um, is um, a conflict, and sometimes that conflict turns into violence. And so one of the uh, findings within the academic literature that most scholars accept is that anocracies are the most war-prone. And when I talk about war-prone, we're talking about civil war-prone. So the society breaks down. And you can see that we're seeing a, a, a downtick uh, in, uh, in a stabilization, but it, uh, uh, and it's actually increased to, to, to 2017, a downtick in the number of free countries as democracies, um, and then uh, partly free and not free. We're seeing an increase there. That's not good news. Uh, and then here, this is a very complicated slide, but what I want you to look at is sort of this sort of relationship. And here are anocracies in between. This is looking at different kinds of state failure. So you can think about ethnic war. This is fights between ethnic groups within a society. We just heard about Shia and Sunni. That's bearing out in Iraq, uh, to some extent Syria. Uh, revolutionary war taken over the state on its own completely. Uh, uh, adverse re regime change, think about coups. Thailand, I think, has now had 15 coups. Uh, and then genocide and politicide, so that's targeting of one sector of a population. And you can see that these anocracies right here, uh, those are the ones that are most prone to actually all types. Uh, and again, since we're seeing a, a decrease, there's sort of democratic backsliding, that's not good news. So the demand for intervention seems to be there. And then, on top of that, if you look at dynamics about how civil wars have ended since the end of the Cold War, prior to the end of the Cold War, most civil wars ended by military victory. One side prevailed to the other, and actually it was split between governments and rebels. With the end of the Cold War, the good news is that we have uh, a split now between negotiated settlements and victories. Uh, and again, it's split between rebels and governments. Uh, but what this means, if you're thinking about intervention, is, of course, with these negotiated settlements, there's more demand for intervention. 
Uh, and so the basic line is, or the basic um, point I want to make with this is that there's going to be an increased demand for intervention uh, as instability continues, despite the fact that in the late 90s, early 2000s, we all talked about, and the trends were showing a decrease, but actually it hasn't been decreasing. We're now seeing that uptick again. The good news, uh, I mean, and, and actually you can see here, if you just look at the rise of UN peacekeeping forces, two big blips at the end of the Cold War, uh, this is, of course, the wars in former Yugoslavia to some extent. Uh, but then also, this is the negotiated settlements coming online and the need for UN peacekeepers to go to country in order to stabilize the situation either right before the violence completely died or right after in order to keep the peace. And now we're seeing the uptick again. And it's across regions. Uh, you can see Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and then, of course, the Middle East. Um, the good news is that there's a lot of support for this. Globally speaking, there's some exceptions. The Middle East does not like the UN to come in. The Canadians, uh, you guys, uh, really support the UN. You have some of the highest images of the United Nations around the world. So the UN does seem to be held in good favor. So if there is a demand, uh, there is uh, support, perhaps, for them to go places uh, if they need to go. Uh, and, but I want to point out that most operations, most interventions around the world are not actually provided by the UN. The majority are done by states or coalitions of states outside the UN. And we already heard from the general about NATO. NATO is an operative that's, that's separate from the UN. Uh, but then you also have the African Union uh, and then individual states or partners of states going in uh, around the world doing these kinds of operations. So that's the demand. I think it's going to be increasing. Uh, the question is, is whether we're going to provide that. We, uh, as a sort of Western uh, coalition and uh, alliance system, all right, what about the supply? Again, you want to be thinking about this in two ways. One is, is in ongoing wars, uh, and then the second is, is once the fighting stops. And usually, if you have the war that's ongoing, typically, um, um, uh, when it's involving individual states or pairs of states or neighbors, they tend to be partial. So you're taking the side of uh, one party or the other. Uh, when it's impartial, that usually involves the United Nations. You get a UN Security Council resolution, and you're going in to stabilize the peace. You tend not to get partial. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, let me go forward. You tend not to get the when war stops partial and then impartial when the war is stopped, uh, you get those as well. But again, they tend to be UN operations. And you can see here, you know, NATO tends to be here, but it's individual states getting involved. And you could see Russia into both Syria and Ukraine. Uh, if you look at the percentage of ongoing civil wars around the world uh, from 1975 to 2010, um, most states uh, have no intervention, actually. The wars tend to let them burn. Uh, Edward Ludwak in the 1990s wrote a very um, uh, famous piece, Let It Burn. And actually, that seems to be the sense, generally speaking, uh, that most civil wars do not have an intervention. When there is an intervention, uh, it tends to be on behalf of the government. So there does seem to be a sort of status quo bias, a sense that the government has legitimacy and that it needs to be helped out by these nasty rebels, right, or the insurgents in there. And this, again, is across wars. This is a longer time span from 44 to 99. Um, all right, so what do we know? So key findings. So I'm an academic. Steve Sadam is an academic, but he has some policy chops on him, so I think we're going to get both from him. So I'm just going to go through some uh, key findings from the intervention literature. 
three key ones stick out. We always do threes, right? Uh, first, that inter interventions tend to increase war duration. They tend to make wars last longer. And if you think about that logically, it makes perfect sense. And the reason is, is that you're bringing resources, personnel, you're shifting interests, and you're shifting balances of power within states. It turns out that when you uh, go and support the government, it's not as helpful as actually helping the rebels to win. So when there is an intervention and it's on behalf of the rebels, it actually helps. However, there's a big condition here, and it has to do with if the rebels fight as a conventional force, um, they tend to actually tends not to help as much because then you have target sets that you can destroy. So there's sort of a, a caveat there. Um, and then intervening on behalf of government, it tends not to help, actually. So as you know, you're thinking through the year ahead, you want to be thinking about which side is being um, supported. So given implications, you know, interveners want to know under what conditions, where, when, who should they should be supporting. When the rebels are rel relatively strong but not necessarily concentrated. Um, and for supporters of rebels, you want to have a credible chance they will win. And if you think about Syria, one of the reasons why the Obama administration in particular was quite reticent about getting involved is they weren't convinced that the rebels could win. And actually, I think in that case, they made the right decision because they were, if you remember, uh, they were splintering, splintering, splintering. It wasn't clear which ones we were going to support and then which one, whether they're going to win. And then for supporters of governments, you really want a sense that you can defeat the rebels that the, and or that they're a real threat. So we can think about the Taliban uh, just on its own terms as an organization. It's an organization that we might want to see defeated. Similarly with ISIS. ISIS is a complicated case because it's sort of a transnational war that, that's feeding into civil wars and civil discord within states. Within UN interventions, uh, an ongoing, it's an uphill battle. Right, so that was that last finding was general interventions, uh, and what's striking is the UN is not trained at fighting wars. The peace, they are peacekeepers. However, that's been changing um, over time, um, and. Uh, when you look at the data about UN interventions, there's been 71 of them since the 1940s. Uh, it tends to reduce civilian casualties, that's a good thing. However, when you put UN observers, so the UN is getting involved sort of earlier into these fights, uh, it tends to increase casualties. Uh, and then the presence of, in it doesn't, if, if the point of bringing them in, uh, into ongoing wars is to end the fighting, it tends not to push the parties to mediation or to a peace agreement. So it's a real mixed bag. So one, one implication might be go back to peacekeeping and stop with this peace enforcement stuff. Uh, for Canadians, if you look at where you guys have been, uh, the General's already alluded to it, uh, since 1940, uh, so from, from 1964 to the present. Again, similar to intervention data uh, more generally, only about a third uh, of conflicts have the Canadians been involved with the, with the United Nations. Uh, and then if you look at um, uh, interventions in Africa from 1964 to the present, UN interventions with Canadian participation, there were 19 of them. Uh, without Canadian participation, 17, and then other Canadian interventions where you go in on your own or with other countries, there's been about 12. That's just Africa. So again, the idea being it's not just the UN, but also other entities that might be involved or the state alone. So intervention after war ends, like I said, you can think about it on ongoing wars, or you can think about it uh, um, uh, after the war ends. Again, it's to keep the parties apart, trying to reinforce a ceasefire or a stalemate and perhaps bring a negotiated settlement, or in the case of South Sudan, help to facilitate a partition and a creation of two states. 
Um, and again, most interventions do not involve the UN, particularly in these interventions after a war has ended. But for the UN, oh, did I do this? Oh, yeah. For the UN, the mandates are changing. Um, so the UN is conducting more missions, but it's doing them quite poorly. Actually, the data are clear that it's not doing them as effectively. Um, and the mandates are becoming less impartial. The UN was always held up as an impartial entity. States putting it forward. It wasn't the UN its own, but states voting to say, yes, indeed, we want to be involved, but it's becoming less impartial. Uh, perhaps most important is being seen as less impartial. Um, it's being seen as more offensive. Um, and, you know, some people say the UN Security Council is now willing to go to places where there's actually no peace to keep, right? So we, we actually don't see the peace uh, uh, there that we can possibly keep. So summary and implications. So uh, the key is, is that continued instability around the world, uh, it means that there's going to be more and more and more missions. There's going to be a demand for more missions. Um, and if you look at the intervention to end wars and ongoing wars, again, think about the rebels. I wrote a book on this, but not all exclusively. I mean, if the rebels are nasty, yet then, then you may not uh, uh, want to support them. As to UN peacekeeping operations and ongoing civil wars, they seem to have no effect, which is sort of tragic. Um, uh, on the other hand, after it, uh, it does seem to decrease the likelihood of a future war. So I just finished yesterday teaching my last class on civil wars, and I start the course with, okay, we're going to try to get a handle on under what conditions the civil wars erupt, and the number one indicator of a civil war is a prior civil war, which sounds stupid, but actually people forget about that. Um, and um, the UN peacekeeping operations, assuming you have enough troops deployed, do seem to prevent that from happening again. And then non-peacekeeping operations seem to have limited impact, and that's non-UN peacekeeping. And the reason for that seems to be that more often than not, you've got one side supporting the rebels or insurgents and the other side supporting the government. And so actually, it just leads to an intractable situation. So for ongoing wars, uh, again, support with the rebels, but only against isolated targets. Uh, and then for governments, um, it's only if they're fighting relatively weak insurgencies. Um, and then um, uh, it tends to work a little bit more against conventional fighters. Why we were able to defeat ISIS. I used to say with the Taliban, you know, the United States sort of uh, uh, left, this, left there. Uh, let them regroup. We know, we know about target sets. We know how to go in uh, and go after bases and, and munitions and, and uh, um, combat vehicles and that kind of thing. It's much more difficult when they hit the hills. So implications for UN peacekeeping operations. Uh, the UN is intervening in ongoing conflicts, and its mandates now are moving in the fight in, in the direction of war fighting. I think this is a real problem. Um, because, of course, the partiality, uh, and then also the lack of training. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. Moving away from principles of consent, this is what the United Nations was founded on, right? The idea of sovereignty of nations and that there has to be some sort of agreement. So one option in thinking about this is partnering with more regional allies, and it's doing a little bit this uh, of this, um, so France and Mali, uh, working with them, uh, and, and local allies. Uh, and thinking less about these combat forces, but if you have to do it, really uh, start training for it. So I'm going to end there. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Stoft. Uh, I now call upon Professor Steve Shadman from uh, Carleton University. Uh, thank you, Phil. Uh, and thank you for attending this uh, conference the year ahead. Uh, what I'm going to try to do today is talk a little bit about one of the big constraints or concerns for any of these efforts, which are allies. Uh, today is Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, which remind, which 
might make us think about the nostalgia of how wonderfully easy it was for allies to work together in that great big fight. Uh, but if you read any of the books about World War II, you don't even have to talk about Charles de Gaulle to talk about allies who distrust each other and had lots of conflict. Uh, the, the British and the Americans had lots of contempt for each other in the Africa campaign, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, Eisenhower was complaining about uh, Monty uh, long after he was president of Columbia University. Um, if you go to Australia, one of the striking things if you, uh, in one of the museums there is that one of the highlights for Australian political history of its moment of independence, essentially, was during World War II when uh, after the Africa campaign was more successful, the question was what do we do with these Australian troops who've been miscommanded in Africa? And uh, Churchill wanted to send them to Burma. And John Curtin, the Prime Minister of Australia, said, no, they're coming back home because we're still worried about the Japanese threat to our homeland. And FDR said, well, couldn't you really spare the troops for Burma? And John Curtin said, no, they're my troops. They're coming back home. And so this is a point of pride for that individual Prime Minister. And I think it's a point of pride for Australia uh, that they showed themselves to be an independent country that could say no to the, the big powers of the day. And so what I want to do today is talk a little bit about some old dynamics and some new problems. Uh, the, the key dynamic with alliances is a dual trap, a uh, dual dilemma uh, of entrapment or abandonment. That is, every ally worries that two bad things can happen when they ally with another country. Either they'll get dragged into a war they don't want to fight, or that when they are threatened, their allies will not show up. And these problems are old. We've seen this in past conflicts, and they are alive today. I'm pretty sure the Japanese and South Koreans are wondering if they're going to get stuck in a war they don't want to fight because Donald Trump is talking about uh, a war with North Korea. His national security advisor is talking about time running out. And I'm pretty sure the South Koreans and the Japanese are thinking, we have all the time in the world. We do not have to rush this. Uh, but yet they, they live at the expense. Their, their, their lives are now in the hands of the Americans who might get them into a war they don't want to fight, which is different than the usual. Japanese and South Korean conundrum, which is, will the United States show up and defend them against North Korea or against China? Uh, and, the, and these countries have to worry about those problems at the same time. So this is an old dynamic, and we see that around the world, particularly in, in uh, East Asia, but we also see it in the Baltics. So that's the first problem. The second problem is there's some basic challenges of multilateral warfare, which is when an alliance decides to do something, when NATO makes a decision to go someplace, there is no automatic process by which everybody kicks in exactly what is needed and shows up. Uh, when I was doing an interviews for a, a book on, on NATO and Afghanistan, uh, we were talking to members of SHAPE, the Supreme uh, Headquarters of Allied Powers in Europe, which is in Mons, which is what is the military arm of NATO. And this officer said, force generation is begging. They, that the folks in Mons will say, this is what we need. And then they will go around and say, can you provide some, sir uh, or ma'am? Please, can you? And they'll put their hands out, and some troops will come into their laps. And then they keep on going around. And when that doesn't work, they ask the deputy commander of, of, of NATO, DSAC here, to go around, calling uh, usually the chiefs of defense of, of the country, saying, we really need this contribution. If you don't do this, this is not going to work. And when that fails, then they go to SAC here or the secretary general, and those, those individuals end up calling around to the prime ministers and presidents of the member countries. And if that doesn't work, then they get the president of the United States to lean on countries. Uh, and as I'll get to in a minute, that option doesn't really work right now. Um, 
And in this process, when, when a country decides, okay, you can have my troops, they don't just surrender the troops and say, do with them what you will. They provide them with a list of guidelines. This is what they can and cannot do. They can't fight at night. They can't fight in the snow. You can't make them really, really small. They have to be in a big unit. Uh, they can't leave their base. They can't engage in offensive operations. All kinds of restrictions which become known as caveats. And that limits the uh, discretion of the commander, the NATO commander on the field, about how to use these folks. Uh, and the problem is that this list of rules often includes things are actually in invisible ink that you don't know about until they're relevant. That sometimes the countries will send troops into a NATO uh, mission and not tell them things that only become relevant when the command comes down. So in 2008, when there were uh, riots in Kosovo as a result of Kosovo declaring its independence, and there were Serb snipers shooting at uh, international forces, the, the, the best way to deal with snipers is to out-snipe them. Uh, some countries prefer to use tanks against snipers, but that's usually not a good idea. Uh, and so the order came down, take out their snipers. And then when that order came down, there were some groups on the uh, commanders on the ground that said, I'm sorry, but we're not allowed to do that. NATO had been in Kosovo for nine years before uh, this, the, the, these restrictions were, were known. Uh, Rick Hillier referred to these particular kinds of caveats as insidious because they, they reduce trust and make it very hard to do the mission. Um, the question then becomes, why do countries have these restrictions? Uh, and part of this has to do with basic coalition politics. This is not something Canada has to worry about these days. It's not something the United States has to worry about. But most of uh, the allies of Canada and the United States have coalition governments. In any coalition government, there's going to be a more enthusiastic party and a less enthusiastic party to get things done. And so the more enthusiastic party will ask the less enthusiastic party, what do you need to make this happen? And the answer is, well, we might need some restrictions on this so that way there's less problems for us. There's less risk of something bad going on. And those, those compromises will ultimately lead to restrictions on the ground. Um, and so as a coalition government tries to avoid risk, they'll try to make the mission on the ground uh, less dangerous. Uh, this sometimes has a, the opposite effect. So the Germans learned that when they had rules that said they can't engage in offensive operations, that made them targets. And actually, it was the German parliamentarians who said to the defense minister, you should change these restrictions because we need to go after these people before they come after us. And so Germany changed their restrictions in 2009. Um, what happens for countries that are led by presidents or prime ministers who don't have to rely on coalition politics? Well, they'll vary in how risk-averse they are. Uh, and so if they're very risk-averse, then they will try to limit the discretion of the troops on the ground. And what this meant in Afghanistan, and what it means in any operation, is that some countries will bear more of the burden than others. Can Canadians are very familiar with this because Canada uh, received the third highest level of casualties total in, in Afghanistan. And per capita, they were only behind the Estonians and the Danes. Uh, and Canadians complained that they were doing an unfair share of, of, of the burden. The America, you actually saw Canadian defense ministers show up at NATO meetings being as or more obnoxious as Donald Rumsfeld uh, when yelling at the, their allies who are underperforming in Afghanistan. And so this is very political in NATO, it made it harder to continue the mission, it made it harder in Canada to support the mission because it was unfair. Um, and now when we look backwards on Afghanistan to any new mission, there's three groups of countries. There's the countries that paid a higher price, 
the Canadians, the Danes, the Americans, the Brits, who think, well, this is unfair. We shouldn't be doing these things because we pay a higher price. There's a so-called rations consumers who spent most of their time consuming rations in Afghanistan, who also bore casualties, whether that's the Germans or the French or the Italians. They, they bore casualties. They suffered politically and economically for this. It was costly, but they get no credit for it because they did less than what was expected of them. So they look at Afghanistan and go, why should we do this again? And then you got the United States who scratches his head and goes, this multilateral form of warfare is really, really annoying. Why should we do this again? It's the lesson of Kosovo being relearned. And so these old problems make the problems of the day harder. So what are the problems of the day? Well, there's a lot of discussion about UN peacekeeping. Today we have a situation that is much like the past, not the recent past of the 1990s. Why was there such a big boom in peacekeeping in the 1990s? There was no conflict in the 1980s, or 1970s, 1960s? Oh, there was heaps of conflict in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. But action of the UN was often blocked by the Cold War, that the United States would veto things the Russians liked, and the Soviets would veto things that the Americans liked, and the Chinese just don't want intervention of any kind. We're back to that now, where lots of efforts in the world are going to get blocked by either Russian opposition to what the Americans want to do, or maybe what the Europeans want to do, given where the United States is these days, or the United States is going to be opposed to what other countries are going to do. So there's a lot more opportunity for vetoes to take place at the UN. The second problem is, as the general hinted at, is that most of the advanced democracies of the world face a great deal of overstretch. They're involved in a lot of places. Uh, the Canadian list is pretty long, and Canada has a smaller military than others, but uh, the French are in Mali, among, with a bunch of other European countries. Um, and there's, uh, the, the, the Brits are all over the place. And so they're, they're overstretched. Everybody's recovering from austerity, uh, from the 2008 financial crisis. The last thing that the publics of Europe want to do is spend more money in the military. They want to spend it more on social programs. And the operational tempo of these troops is incredible. That special operations forces, which everybody's leaning on more heavily, are exhausted. That they can count their number of missions not in two, three, four, but in six, seven, eight, nine, ten over the past how many years. And the whole idea about special operations forces is they're special, which means that they're few, which means that they get called on and the same people end up doing the same things over and over again. There's another dynamic involved, which is Trump, which is that when allies decide to join an American operation or an international operation involving Americans with American leadership, the popularity of the American president matters. So after the Iraq war started in 2003, it became harder for European countries to work the Americans, particularly after Guantanamo and after Abu Ghraib. It made it harder politically because there are parties within European countries that didn't want to stand next to the American president. When Obama became president, there was a new willingness to cooperate with the United States because Obama was popular in Europe. These days, Trump is toxic, more toxic than George Bush ever was. And so if you're in, engaged in this coalition bargaining about how to engage an operation, do you want to be seen as someone helping out Donald Trump? Even Merkel herself has realized there are political gains to be sort of running against Donald Trump as she's running for office again and again in Germany. So this becomes very hard for any future operation. How do you get the coalition politics to work when everybody does not want to stand next to Donald Trump? In the Baltics, we have this commitment. Canada is in Latvia. 
And the good news is these caveats I talked about, these restrictions, really don't matter if the, Ru- the, the Russians invade because we're all going to die. That is, it doesn't matter if the unreliable countries that we've gotten on board with us, we, Latvia is chock full of countries that are working with us that are among the least reliable of NATO allies. Albania, Slovakia, Poland, uh, Italy, and Spain. These are not exactly the stalwarts of, of military operations over the past 20 years. But it doesn't matter because if the Russians were to invade, the troops, the troops on the ground will die, and that's their purpose, is to be a tripwire. So that's the good news. I think that's good news. The bad news is... Unless you're one of those troops, then it's not so cool, right? <laughs> yes, well, but they know what their job is. But the bad news is, in terms of alliance politics, is not everybody's on the same page. And so the lessons that Estonia and Latvia apparently have learned from the hybrid war of, of Ukraine is that if you have to have your uh, troops on the ground wait for orders from on high if there are little green men doing their hybrid stuff, that's a problem because the Russians are going to try to block your communications. So what do you do to handle that? Well, you delegate to the troops on the ground. If you can't call home and you see these guys, shoot. And so you'll have NATO troops on the ground who might have different rules of engagement, but they're next to Estonians or Latvians who start shooting. That's a challenge. Um, So in the year ahead, what should we expect? I don't expect to see lots of new operations, because it could be hard to get NATO to get consensus. I mean, today, most of the European allies are heading to to the UN to protest Donald Trump's stance on Israel. This is not uh, the background. This is not the foundation for future uh, cooperation anywhere else. So I don't expect to see too many new operations. But you may see escalation in lots of the current uh, uh, operations. Uh, the second thing I, I, I recommend uh, going to a Twitter conversation that Phil was having online this morning is one of humility. Uh, that Canada, as a relatively small country, will not dictate the strategy of NATO or of the UN or of anybody it's operating with. Um, it can only try to influence what it is doing itself in these places. And that one of the other lessons of that I haven't really talked about is in these places we're dependent on proxies. The Karzai brothers, for instance, that worked out great. Uh, That the previous folks running Iraq made things worse. Uh, uh, So we're always dependent on the local allies who have their own interests. And their interests are often directly in conflict with us. And even when they're not directly in conflict with us, they complicate things. So when the Kurds have a referendum, it becomes very hard for Canada to operate and help out the Kurds because we might end up seeing a war between the Kurds and the rest of Iraq. Uh, so we need to be, uh, have humility about how much we can do, how much effect we have, and how many more of these alliance operations that are going to go on in the next couple of years, as everything is far more complicated now than they were uh, just a few years ago. Thank you. That was a panel discussion from The Year Ahead, an international security, intelligence, and defense outlook for 2018 recorded at the Canadian War Museum.